Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about a really interesting book titled Truth and Transparency, Undercover Investigations in the 21st Century, published by Cambridge University Press and written by two authors, both of whom I have the pleasure of having with us today, Dr. Alan Chen and Dr. Justin Marceau, who examine what undercover investigations and investigators do, what they've done throughout history, how the law looks at this, especially in America, um, and also how the public perceives this kind of work. So there's a whole bunch of things packed into this nicely concise book. And Alan and Justin, I'm so pleased to welcome the both of you to the podcast. Thank Thank you you for having us. We're very happy for the opportunity to talk about our work. I'm glad to have the both of you. Could we start off, please, with a bit of an introduction of each of you and explain why you decided to write this book and why write it together? Alan, can you start us off? Sure. Uh, I I am a professor of law at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law, um, where I specialize in teaching and writing about American constitutional law. Um, I'll let Justin introduce himself and then uh, he can talk about how we decided to choose this topic and write together. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, I'm Justin Marceau, and I teach uh, with Alan at the University of Denver, um, where I've been since, I think, 2008, and uh, specialize in a variety of constitutional areas and criminal law. But um, Alan and I have been working together for, I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Alan, but almost about a decade um, looking at various statutes that impede transparency. And so I had been working with some undercover investigators and some groups that were looking at laws that were criminalizing investigations of the sort we talk about in the book. Uh, and Alan, as one of the sort of free speech leading scholars in the, in the U.S. and really internationally, uh, I went to him and he was interested. And so for many years, we just spent litigating and thinking about these issues and serving as experts and doing other things. Uh, and then eventually we thought that we should put this together as kind of a, a socio-legal project that has a lot of our legal work baked into it, but we take kind of a broad perspective and try to unpack what has happened over time and across different disciplines with regards to undercover investigations. Hmm. Very helpful background. Thank you for that introduction. Before we get into the socio-legal details here that are so fascinating, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. So can you walk us through what you mean by undercover investigations? Perhaps, Justin, if I can come back to you on that? Yeah, sure. Thank you for that question. And it is, it's, I think one of the contributions of our book, or at least what we try to do is, Alan and I took a very deliberate approach of trying to distinguish undercover investigations from a couple of other categories of work that we think is important, but that is sometimes conflated with undercover investigations. And those are whistleblowing and what you might call uh, investigative reporting. And in our mind, um, investigative reporting is a more generic term. It's something that might include records or requests or really any kind of journalistic sleuthing around, I suppose. It could include undercover investigations, but we think of it as a more general term. And then whistleblowing is often kind of an insider type term where, where a former or current employee is coming forward, something like that, right? 
when what we mean by undercover investigations, and we're really clear about this with um, our audience and also with the people that we do um, sort of public survey polling with, is we mean something, someone who engages in a deception. It could be affirmative, it could by, be a, by omission about who they are or why they're there. And they engage in that deception in order to gain access to an area that they otherwise wouldn't have permission to be. And then they document something. So they, they could do it by video, they could do it through notes, they could do it um, you know, through audio recording. Um, but so the key pieces for us uh, is that there is a deception, right? There's something that uh, we might call a lie or an omission, and it's done for the purpose of documenting something that isn't uh, otherwise available to the public. Uh, and so it, it's very important to us to just sort of have that tight uh, definition that includes deception because we didn't want anyone to think we were just talking about, you know, oh, you saw something out your window um, and you otherwise wouldn't have seen if you happened to look at that moment or, oh my gosh, I found these records that were mailed to me and they're super interesting. Like we really mean someone who is doing something that by general social norms might be viewed as, as somewhat taboo in order to gain access to information um, that we think is of public importance and otherwise would be unavailable. Hmm. Thank you for being so precise about the definition. I think that does very much contribute to um, our conversation that we can now talk about that properly uh, in this interview and more broadly. So now that we know exactly what we're talking about, um, I'd love to ask you about maybe one of my favorite parts of the book, but maybe that's my bias coming at it mainly as a historian. The fact that you document that these this kind of undercover investigation has not been uniformly used throughout um, the sort of 20th century, 21st century of American journalism, that there's some moments where it's a bigger part of what's happening in the world of journalism. Sometimes it's smaller. Alan, maybe you could give us a brief overview of kind of these ups and downs in terms of how and how much undercover investigation has been used at different points in time. Uh, yes, I'd be happy to. and I'm glad you enjoyed that part of the book. I, we enjoyed working on it. Uh, so probably undercover investigations are most associated with journalism. And that's, as far as we can tell from our historical research, that's where the concept originated. But it didn't originate at the outset of the uh, creation of the United States. Um, er early American journalism, as we wrote about, uh, was very highly politicized. The, the political parties pretty much controlled uh, all the major newspapers from the founding period of the United States through probably the mid-19th century, uh, about the mid-1800s. You know, mid um, it wasn't until then that independent newspapers started to emerge. And as far as we can tell, the first example of journalists using undercover investigations is the is northern newspaper editors sending their reporters into the s south of the United States just prior to the Civil War uh, to report about the conditions, the abhorrent conditions of slavery. Um, and then continuing on through the Civil War uh, to report about the actual the, the war, the, fa the fighting of the war itself. Um, and then uh, there's, I would say, two major periods where undercover investigations were most widely used and, and, and probably celebrated in the journalistic community. Uh, the first era is uh, during the progressive era of the United States, the sort of late 1800s through the maybe the 1930s or so. And that's where you see examples that we talk about in the book. Um, some of the things that your your listeners might have heard uh, about Upton Sinclair 
and his investigation of the Chicago meatpacking industry. Nellie Bly, who's most famous for going undercover uh, at a um, a mental health asylum in New York to discover the, the poor treatment of its uh, of its residents, um, and a number of other journalists began to undertake these investigations, and they were widely celebrated uh, because they discovered really important information that was being hidden from the public view. Then we see kind of a lull after the progressive era, perhaps because uh, the world was busy with other things like fighting uh, World War II and and, uh, the beginning of the civil rights movement in the United States. Um, But undercover investigations again emerge around the time of the Watergate scandal uh, in the United States, the, the scandal involving President Nixon's administration uh, and uh, and the aftermath of Watergate, where there was a real reform mentality among the journalistic community. Uh, and with that, soon after that came the advent of television news magazine programs. And they, the, these TV news programs are some of the most uh, uh, sort of the most prolific users of undercover investigations. Uh, because they had the equipment and the resources to do sort of really intense undercover investigations involving uh, uh, hidden hidden cameras, as we talk about in the book. Um, And now I would say that we're at a period where journalists are kind of shying away from going to undertaking undercover investigations, at least at least these employment based investigations like we've like Justin was talking about. Uh, and we can talk about the many reasons why uh, the, why that might be happening uh, later on in the interview. Thank you for that very helpful overview. And um, before we move from the kind of historical side to the present, Justin, is there anything you'd like to add on this historical question? No, I think that's a that's a great summary. I mean, I think that um, you know it's important to note, as Alan did, that we really see these ebbs and flows over time. And it's hard to characterize exactly why at one particular moment, undercover investigators are being heralded by US presidents as heroes and at another, they're kind of demonized as villains and and trespassers. But there's this sort of consistent theme that we try to map throughout the book where, you know, one investigation or one investigator is a hero and then the next one is a criminal um, there. And it, and, and the terminology really matters over time, right? If you, even if you did a study and you looked at how people respond to, um, someone that you call an undercover investigator or a whistleblower versus a leaker, the reactions are quite different. Uh, and those tend to map over time with, with the public opinion, right? Are we referring to someone who's disclosing information as a leaker or are they an investigator? Um, and so this is, this is something that really, um, motivated us to, to, to dig deeply and, and think about these questions, just the kind of historical um, ebbs and flows and popularity of this practice. Hmm. Thank you for adding that. Um, can we sort of link that then to the contemporary environment? Um, because I think we're probably, we're not done with the ebbs and flows necessarily. So what are some of the key factors now or more recently that you think make undercover investigations still so salient? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I'm not sure what I would say exactly. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things, as Alan said, we're kind of interested that at the moment, seems to be falling into a a bit of um, less use and and less popularity. Um, But, you know, 
my personal perspective is that despite the fact that social media and the internet has made so much that was once private um, part of the public domain, in many ways, the ongoing industrialization of the world and the global economy has made it so that we know less about so much than we once did, right? We're no longer bartering for our food and that's been a long time, but the rise of industrial farming and the changing way that we conduct prisons, um, you know, we went from the, the gallows and the public executions and sort of trading um, your neighbor, you know, some eggs for some grain or something to these massive, massive industries. And in some ways that is to, to our eye, why undercover investigations continue to have such a salient role in kind of informing the public about what's going on. And, you know, we could talk about the various industries and the various ways this has been true in modern time. But one that for me has has always struck, and it's where, you know, Alan and I first got started in this, as I mentioned, is in, in food production, right? And some of the investigations in the last decade um, have really, I think, shaped public opinion and continue to do so for those who have seen them about the way that um, our food is produced. And, you know, some of these investigations have been really keyed to health issues, sort of the use of animals um, that are diseased or unable to move. And that has resulted in food recalls and that sort of thing. And some of the investigations just reveal kind of the routine practices that I don't think most of us consider when we sit down to eat. Um, you know, I looked at an investigation just a couple from a couple of years ago that an uh, organization out of Canada, Animal Justice, did, and it was meant to show kind of just the routine practices in a relatively small dairy farm in Canada, and you know the the separation of mother animals from their babies, which is routine practice. That kind of thing is not something you see on the milk carton, right? And so, um, you know, a lot of the effort we put into this book was was designed to kind of document the way that we have truly, as a culture and as a society, learned things that were otherwise unknowable. And that sometimes results in legislative change and push, but we're also in a complicated time where, you know, the very technology that we are calling on to document these things, the power of a recording device that Upton Sinclair didn't have, right? I mean, think about it. Upton Sinclair would go back to his room at night and type notes. Um, he was there to document. He said he was aiming for the, I think the quote is something like he was aiming, he told the, 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 um, his, his peers that he was aiming for the, the heart because he was trying to document uh, problems with, with immigrant labor and the, the working conditions in these factories. He's aiming for the heart, but he ended up hitting the stomach because what he saw was so gross. Um, and ultimately, right after the publication of The Jungle, um, we saw reforms in Federal Meat Inspection Act and what could happen at these meat packing plants. And so part of what Alan and I have, I think, taken very seriously is the role of undercover investigations in providing an informed democracy. And that's why, as we we say in the in the title of the book, Undercover Investigations in the 21st Century, we think this is part of democracy in the 21st century. Hmm. Thank you for explaining kind of how it's relevant today. And I think that also very helpfully gives us a sense of stakes here um, and importance, 
which then makes, I think, the next question I want to ask um, sort of even more interesting, because despite the importance, Justin, you've just told us about in terms of democracy, in terms of an informed public, it's not like there aren't impediments to doing undercover investigations. In fact, there are quite a few. So, um, Alan, if I could ask you about some of the big impediments, and I know there's a lot to cover here, so I'm going to split it up into the two categories that are maybe talked about, but let's risk written down. And then secondly, the actual legal stuff that might literally be on the books. So to start off with the um, less text-based side, what sort of ethics and ideology might we need to understand as impediments to undercover investigations? That's a great question, Miranda. And I think that one of the, uh, and the, I, first of all, I would like to say that the all these things are interrelated also, um, as, as many complicated questions are. Uh, in terms of ethics, uh, there has been a real divide in the journalistic community over the ethics of undercover investigations. And this, as we talk about in the book, uh, has been going on for nearly a century with, uh, with some journalists thinking that undercover investigations are an essential component of news gathering and others thinking or arguing that reporters at the very least owe the public the duty of truth, including in their own reporting. And so that lying about or omitting your, your identity as a journalist um, uh, to many people in the journalistic community is, is unethical. Uh, and that it's not, it's not an appropriate me- uh, means of news gathering. Um, so there's that ethical divide within the journalistic community what uh, Justin was just talking about was undercover investigations, not necessarily by journalists, but by political activists uh, in the animal rights movement and in other uh, political movements. And this is where we might see a little bit of an ideological divide uh, where, uh, uh, where there's some, uh, those who oppose undercover investigations um, might be more heavily invested in protecting private property rights, because often these investigations go uh, involve going onto somebody's private property uh, with consent of the owner, but that consent is obtained by the previously mentioned omission or deception. Uh, and those who are heavily invested in protecting privacy rights. Although, as we talk about in the book, uh, you know, many of the, uh, many of the areas in which the reporters or activists go for undercover investigations while they are private property, they're not private in the sense of somebody's bedroom or, or somebody, a locker room or th- things like that. Um, at the same time, and, and then on the other side, there's the, the ideology of democracy and transparency, which we, uh, we obviously uh, weigh more heavily in our evaluation of undercover investigations uh, in terms of its importance. Uh, but as Justin will talk about later, uh, it, uh, th- there actually is an interesting other type of ideological uh, alignment that you might see because uh, groups both on the left and the right have conducted undercover investigations uh, with to great effect. And so, for example, you know, the example on the left would be animal rights movement, the labor movement, uh, things like that. Uh, uh, on the right now, we see conservative groups undertaking undercover investigations, uh, for example, anti-abortion groups. Uh, which have uh, done investigations of Planned Parenthood and other reproductive rights organizations. So you kind of see the groups on both sides of the political spectrum 
taking advantage of the concept of undercover investigations, although from coming at it from ideologically opposed uh, uh, viewpoints, but valuing the technique of uncovering otherwise hidden information um, through this technique of undercover investigations. Hmm. I thought that was perhaps the most interesting aspect of thinking about ideology in this context of the kind of both sides making use of it and also sometimes having problems with it, um, which I don't know if they'd like being put in the same bucket in that sense. Um, could we move from talking I'm sure about... sure that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Could we move from talking about ideology to law in terms of impediment? Sure. Um, as, I, as I already mentioned, there's... Um, there are those who argue that any, the type of undercover, undercover investigations we discuss uh, violate both the property and privacy rights of those who are the subjects of these investigations. And uh, there have been a number of different vehicles uh, under the law that have been used to try to either punish or deter these types of investigations. Uh, one of the most common techniques under the law to deter undercover investigations in the in the past has been the use of uh, private tort claims. So personal injury claims by the subjects of investigation for, uh, say, trust, uh, violations of law, the common law of trespass, of um, uh, invasion of privacy, of something, uh, an obscure tort in America called the duty of loyalty. Uh, and uh, and fraud and uh, these types of claims have been launched against undercover investigation uh, uh, undercover investigators against major television news networks um, and uh, and even though not all of them have resulted in large financial verdicts against those networks or those reporters uh, just the cost of defending this litigation can run into the millions and millions of dollars. So that's one, that's sort of a civil law impediment to carrying out undercover investigations. And as Josh, Justin mentioned earlier, there are now in many states, uh, uh, legislatures are adopting criminal laws, uh, making it an actual crime where you could be sent to prison for engaging in some of the types of undercover activities, investigations that we, we discussed in the book. Uh, primarily by targeting, specifically uh, uh, creating crimes of trespass by deception. That is trespass where the property owner consents to you coming on their property, but under the false pretenses of you not disclosing your true identity and your true motive. Uh, and um, also laws that make it a crime to engage in video recording or audio recording without the consent of the person who's being recorded uh, to ostensibly to protect the privacy of those who are the targets of that recording, uh, but really, again, targeting and deterring undercover investigations. Uh, we, we represent many clients uh, who, in our, in our non-academic life when we're litigating cases uh, who are affirmatively chilled by these laws, and that is they will not conduct an undercover investigation in a state that has a criminal law because they don't want to risk criminal liability for their, uh, their investigators. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's yeah. important. Justin, do you want to come in? Yeah. I mean, I would just add, I think that what Alan said is, is so true and so important on the legal front. 
And I also think that we document a couple of other impediments to investigations that have emerged. Um, and they're just, they're sort of shades of what Alan was saying. But um, one of them is, you know, kind of doing investigations in a way that is, I don't know, more unsavory or more unseemly. And I, I'm interested in doing some more research on this. But, you know, if somebody um, damages property or, you know, does something like that while they're on doing the investigation, that that has um, sort of negative repercussions. Um, and likewise, if the persons who release the investigation do so in a way that it, that can be characterized as having doctored it or doing something unseemly with it, um, that's going to have an impact. And we've seen some of that. We've seen some of that where people are able to allege, oh, this footage was manipulated to show this and it doesn't look like that. With the rise of deep fakes and all of these things that are possible now, um, it's really, it's a challenge for undercover investigation that I think it's something that's not fully sorted out yet because, you know, if you take hours of footage, it's probably not that compelling to release six, eight hours of footage, much less 40 or 100 hours. Um, and so you're trying to distill it down to a short video, maybe a 30-minute clip, maybe a five-minute clip, but doing so in a way that is not misleading, that does not make it seem like something was said or done that... Um, was not, or making it seem like something is a common practice that isn't, is a challenge. And I think it's it's an important one. Um, I also wanted to mention that the opponents, or often the targets of undercover investigations, they gain political power and they gain some currency by describing the investigators as... <sighs> trying to pry into realms of privacy that really are not what these investigators are interested in. So Alan alluded to this, but, you know, a common response to an undercover investigation is these people think they have a right to come into your bedroom or they think they have a right to be in the restroom with you. And in our work and in our research on this that's really not what anyone is asserting. Now, does that mean that no one is out there trying to hide secret cameras or make deep fakes of Taylor Swift? No, of course, those things are happening. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about undercover investigations. And so if you go back to that definition that I gave in, in response to your first question, a key part of it for us is understanding that undercover investigations are revealing something of public concern. Um, and so that's very different than the kind of prurient interest in oh, what's happening in, you know, um, this person's bedroom or is this person sleeping with this person? We really don't think that that rises to the level of um, undercover investigation that we're talking about and has and should we, we concede have different legal protections. So, you know, in terms of an impediment, I think it is an impediment to a have people out there spying on their neighbors and being peeping toms because it creates this negative aura. And then it is also politically quite powerful to frame good faith journalistic efforts to expose wrongdoing um, to to the sunlight um, as essentially efforts to you know get into your bedroom and show what you're doing behind closed doors because it's really quite different, but it's it's it's, it's quite uh, powerful to frame investigations in that way. Mm, no, absolutely. Thank you for adding that on. Um, obviously, Justin, you've told us first about kind of the importance of this for democracy 
Alan, you've talked us through a number of impediments, um, even people being so chilled by legal uh, possibilities that they don't even go through with it. Justin, you've added additional impediments. So we now have an idea of kind of the tightrope that is being walked by people or organizations trying to conduct undercover investigations. Um, But the stakes very much explain kind of why, for example, news organizations are trying to walk this tightrope. So Alan, could you maybe tell us a bit about how they're trying to do this? What kinds of ethical standards or protocols have they adopted or implemented to try and make this possible? That's a great question. And I love the tightrope metaphor. I think that's exactly what news organizations and even political groups uh, that use these undercover investigations are trying to walk. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, there has been a longstanding debate within the journalistic community over undercover investigations specifically. And that, that debate has, has gone on for some time and, and has ebbed and flowed in terms of what the majority viewpoint is in terms of uh, conducting undercover investigations. From our research, what I would say this current status is, is that uh, most major print media, the major newspapers in the United States, actually affirmatively prohibit their reporters from engaging in the conduct that we define as undercover investigations. That is, they have specific ethical prohibitions that apply to the journalists who work for those publications against uh, using a false identity or not representing yourself uh, as a reporter. Um, Although interestingly enough, they do make a distinction between uh, affirmative misrepresentation and omission. So they seem to be okay with, if if you can get away with uh, somebody assuming you're not a reporter, but but you haven't actually affirmatively misrepresented yourself, that that might be okay. Um, They also have caveats that say, uh, at least some some publications do that indicate that if the information cannot be obtained in any other way, that in some limited circumstances, undercover investigations uh, might be permissible with the with the permission of their their editors. The television news community operates quite differently than the print news uh, news industry in the United States, and uh, they have always been a little bit more aggressive about undertaking undercover investigations. Obviously, they have the technology and the equipment to do hidden camera uh, exposés. It also makes for, you know, frankly, for good television uh, to show, you know, uh, the undercover uh, investigators exposing illegal or unethical conduct. Um, And this is a little bit more opaque. I've, I've had trouble trying to access television news stations, internal standards and practices, uh, uh, manuals or uh, internal ethical standards, so it's a little bit hard to uh, hard to pinpoint exactly where the television news uh, broadcasters are at this point. I've been doing a little bit of research for a, sub- a project following up on the book, uh, interviewing people who have been engaged in the TV news industry and undercover investigations, and my, what I've been finding mostly is that they're they're the because of these lawsuits and these threats of criminal prosecution, at the very least, television news stations have have uh, moved away from in these employment-based investigations where their reporters or journalists go uh, and obtain jobs at the target of an investigation in order to conduct 
investigation. And uh, that's unfortunate in, in my view because employment-based investigations are probably the most effective way of getting at information that's being hidden from public view. Uh, so if you can't do an employment-based investigation, it's hard to it's hard to figure out exactly how you get a journalist or a political activist onto the scene and in a place where they can observe uh, conduct that they would report to the broader public that might be of, of real civic importance. Hmm. Thank you for taking us through that, in many ways, sort of minefield, like the number of things that have to be considered and communicated in such a precise way um, really, really demonstrates that tightrope that you both have illustrated for us. And in some ways, I almost feel bad because we've kind of been implicitly talking around a particular group of stakeholders here, but not really directly. So I'd like to rectify that now, if possible, um, because this whole thing about the public interest and public right to know or informed public, we, we probably should actually talk about the public um, and the extent to which they approve of, are receptive to these sorts of investigations, essentially on their behalf. So Justin, could you tell us a bit about what the two of you found when trying to figure out the extent to which the public was open to undercover investigations? Yes, thank you for that question. And it's, I think Alan and I had the same instinct. We'd been working on this from a historical perspective, um, really digging into the ethics of the different professions, thinking about the legal consequences. Um, and at some juncture while we were writing the book, um, Alan and I were sitting together and I think we both realized that uh, we had a real need to account for how does this play into the public's sense of what is important and what's not important. And we did a pretty extensive dive into the, the literature. And what I think we were surprised, but in part it's definitional, was that there's really been no prior uh, empirical work, not, not, not qual uh, quantitative work, looking at the public's uh, tolerance for and acceptance of undercover investigations. There's been some research looking at um, how do how do various investigative tactics um, shape public opinion? So if there's a you know expose of something, um, has did that help change public opinion or not? But not a focused look at undercover investigations. You know, there's there's sometimes a CNN poll or something saying, do you support undercover investigations? Um, and you see different numbers, but never was there a controlled study where persons were actually told what they. What we, what we mean by undercover, undercover investigation. So there's not confusion. So we really mean that there's probably some lying. There might be recording without consent. How do you feel about those things? And we fully anticipated that the public support for an undercover investigation, when it was explained in these really clear terms, meaning everyone was told, you know, somebody might lie to you to gain access to your business and they might take a video without your permission would be much lower than um, sort of media popularity in general or even other other investigative techniques. But what we found, uh, and I think this is one of the, the notable features of the book, is the opposite is very much uh, true. Even in a period um, now when, you know, popularity of media, media is constantly being called into question, we found extraordinarily high bipartisan support 
for undercover investigations. Uh, I think it was higher than either of us would have anticipated. And, um, you know, so just to, to put some numbers to it, more than 90% of persons, and these were really large controlled studies, um, have uh, w- would report that they were very or somewhat supportive of undercover investigations using these tactics that I just mentioned. And only 3% were not. So you had about 7% neutral. I mean, it's very rare to find something with that much bipartisan support. There's a true kind of shared value. And that's why we felt like we had to describe this as, as kind of a democratic value is people truly value this, no matter what party they are, no matter what gender they are, no matter what education level they are, race, all these different things we controlled for, I can't remember now, but more than more than a half dozen variables. We also looked at, does it matter um, who does the investigation, right? Because you might posit, and we certainly hypothesized and, and published these hypotheses, that it would be more popular for a person on the right uh, if the investigation was done by, say, Fox News or a conservative outlet. And persons on the political left might prefer investigations if they were done by a left-leaning news organization like the New York Times, at least as it's perceived. Um, it turns out that the public all appreciate investigations, no matter who does them. Democrats like undercover investigations, even if they are done by conservative news outlets and vice versa. And the same is true for independents. You know, if you read chapter six, you see there's some variation. Uh, it's not the case that Fox News has the same credibility as the New York Times. Quite interestingly, we found that persons of both political parties have uh, skew towards trusting investigations from the New York Times or independent entities as opposed to Fox News. But everyone supported investigations, no matter who the outlet was. Then we also looked at what if it was, you know, what types of things could be investigated. And this was also interesting to us because we had imagined, and I think most people would in this, in this sort of partisan and ideologically driven um, time, that there would be support for undercover investigations. But once you got specific and you said, well, was it an investigation of an issue that's important to the left or an investigation that's important to the right, we would see fissures kind of along party lines. So if you're investigating a Republican, you might expect that Republicans would find that less um, you know, good. And, and, and conversely, Democrats would not be as supportive of investigations of Democrats. Um, but we didn't find that, right? We found no statistically significant differences. So that means that Democrats, independents, and Republicans all supported undercover investigations, even when it's one of their own, um, which is really quite amazing and hard to fathom uh, in this moment. But that, that, was, that was our finding and it's, it's pretty robust. Um, we can go into the details and if you, if you want to look at chapter six. But, um, and the last thing I'll note, which, which, was, which was quite significant, is we ran a, a study looking at a variety of types of undercover investigations. So if you were to sit back and think about the different things you see undercover investigations about, there's political corruption. Uh, maybe there is, we, we looked at a model of a, uh, a group that tries to combat sex trafficking, human trafficking. Um, so political corruption, sex trafficking, and then there's animal abuse. And then more recently, and some of the headlines have been investigations of uh, those groups that would uh, provide reproductive services like abortions. And quite interestingly, we found overwhelming support in general for undercover investigations across all of those topics. Um, and there's only two notable things that sort of show a partisan divide. 
when you look at investigations of farmed animal cruelty, there is no statistically significant difference in support among Republicans from a baseline to an investigation of farm animals, meaning that is the one category of investigation across um, six that we looked at, including a baseline, where there wasn't a statistically significant difference in, in sort of the support for investigations. Everything else, when you give them facts like sex trafficking or political corruption or abortion, it becomes more popular. But for Republicans in the United States, when they hear about an undercover investigation of farmed animal abuse, um, they're not particularly moved and they don't support investigations more. And for Democrats, interestingly, there is an increase in support for investigations whenever they learn about specific facts of investigation, um, except in one context, and that is the context of someone investigating an abortion-providing facility. So by and large, there is widespread, really dramatic support for undercover investigations at levels that we hadn't anticipated. But on certain hot button issues, you do see some partisan differences. It's important to note, it's not as though Republicans suddenly say, oh, we don't support undercover investigations at all when they learn about the, you know, a farm bail investigation. It's just their support does not increase. Um, whereas the public in law in general, whenever they hear specific facts, whatever it is, political corruption, sex trafficking, the support for undercover investigations is even higher um, than I had described at the beginning of the call. But that's not true in these in these sort of two unique situations. So, you know, overall, I think one of the takeaways from the book is that policymakers and future researchers should really take stock of the fact that our findings are that the public is overwhelmingly supportive of efforts to produce transparency on matters of public concern, even when the methods involve things that I think most people eschew as kind of unseemly, like lying and, and non-consensual audio or video recording. That is absolutely one of the contributions of the book. And I'm so pleased you highlighted it so clearly. And of course, to echo um, your comment about chapter six, the, the book has loads of details. If you want all the numbers on all of this, please go look at the book. Um, but I think the takeaway is very clear, even without being able to necessarily see a graph in front of us right at this second. Um, given the massive amount of public support for this, but also the impediments we've discussed so far, um, we've talked about various aspects of the law and how they relate to this, but can we go kind of all the way up to sort of peak supreme law um, or really constitutional law? How does the First Amendment in the US Constitution apply to these undercover investigations? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, you know, this is one of the things that we've, we've spent a lot of time on. And we, 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 we sort of painstakingly um, drudge through in the book. I would say, you know, and it, this is one of the areas where we probably could have even signaled this more clearly, but we didn't want to overclaim, you know, other countries, including Canada and their, and their charter, have protections for freedom of expression. And at a general level, at, at a kind of conceptual level, when you imagine what free speech or freedom of expression means, and we think this, we think that, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think this is a global point. It's not just a First Amendment point in the U.S. When you think about what freedom of expression means, it means more than just the idea to push play and show someone a movie or to post the video you made on YouTube or whatever it is. It also includes the power and the authority 
to gather the information that you're trying to to reveal uh, to some extent, right? There's some principles embedded there and the ability to edit that information in a way that's not, not deceptive, as I got pointed out before. And so a lot of what we do in the book is unpack the fact that, you know, just as there would be no freedom of expression to write if you couldn't buy ink or you couldn't buy pens you know there's no there's no ability to create music if you can't buy instruments we really point out that um to be able to speak and particularly critically about issues um that are going on behind um, closed doors there has to be some protection for the ability to pretend that uh, you know you aren't a journalist when you enter um, and try to get a job as a, as a prison guard, or there has to be some protection for recording, even though generally we think, oh, well, you shouldn't be recording something without somebody's permission. And you, know, you have all these waivers and all these things to be part of a documentary or something. Um, we think that that would defeat the purposes of free expression in really meaningful ways if courts don't protect the authority of someone when they are lawfully present to record a conversation or record an image. I think that's important. Um, and so for a big part of what we are trying to illustrate in the book is not just, okay, here's what the cases say and here's what it means, but then at a conceptual level, if you think about a right to freely express your views, a right to um, speech, we think that an important part of that is the ability to gather information um, in a way that uh, allows you to tell these stories, allows you to reveal um, misconduct and malfeasance. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Uh, Thank you for that. Alan, do you want to come in? Yeah. Uh, so uh, Justin uh, very well laid out the case for recording as a First Amendment right. We've seen that debate uh, in the United States recently with regard to the uh, idea of, uh, is there a First Amendment right to record police officers while they're engaged uh, in conduct, uh, in, in their professional conduct while they're in public. Um, we argue taking it a step further that if, if it is a matter of public concern, recording on private property is also protected or should be protected by the principles of free speech. The other component to this is the question of whether lying or using deception uh, in order to gain access to a place where you you conduct that recording is also something that's protected by free speech. And that is a, that is something as, as Justin said, has been laid out in some of the case law uh, without going into that detail. Now, what our, what our argument is that is that while certain lies um, uh, don't really have any free speech value, uh, like, uh, you know, some, you know, actually falsifying, for example, where, where, what day the election is on, for example, um, other types of lies, including the types of deceptions that undercover investigations, uh, undercover investigators use to gain access, um, actually have high free speech value. They're high value lies, and that uh, as a as a consequence, uh, if you take a step back and think about what the First Amendment is about, which is uh, promoting access to truthful information and then disseminating that across the broader public, that these types of lies ought to be protected by the First Amendment because the only real harm that they cause is the harm or embarrassment to the target of the investigation when truthful information is published about them after an undercover investigation is conducted. One of the things we didn't talk about earlier in terms of the legal impediments 
to undercover investigations is uh, that when it comes to uh, if, if somebody goes onto somebody's property and comes away and, and provides a false report about what's going on on that property or what's going on behind closed doors, the, that, the target of that investigation has the availability of using defamation law in the United States, suing for damage to reputation from a false statement. All these other mechanisms that have been invoked either through the civil or criminal law to attack undercover investigations, they cannot use defamation law because the information that is disclosed is truthful and truth is a defense to defamation uh, lawsuit. Uh, so that's why they've tried to come up with these other obscure tort mechanisms or even getting the legislature to adopt criminal laws uh, to target those types of investigations. We have argued that those laws violate those principles of the First Amendment that we've been discussing here today. Thank you for adding that um, argument. And I think that that's a really useful word in this case, because it does very much suggest that this is still a topic being sorted out. Justin, I think, as you um, alluded to earlier, that this hasn't been confirmed or resolved yet. So, Alan, is there anything further you'd like to tell us about the kind of current state of the debate specifically around this issue of video recordings and the First Amendment? Sure. The the, the U.S. Supreme Court at least has not yet addressed directly the two questions that we discuss in our book. Um, is deception in the pursuit of truth protected by the First Amendment? And is non-consensual video or audio recording of somebody or some uh, behavior uh, protected by the First Amendment when conducted to discover information of profound public concern. We've seen a number of lower court decisions that have discussed these issues. Uh, there's been some disagreement in the lower courts about the, the scope of those, uh, the scope or existence of a First Amendment right here. Uh, and I. I think we both anticipate that at some point in the next decade, say, the U.S. Supreme Court might take up one or both of these issues. Um, so the, the current state is unsettled, I guess, is the best way to describe it, which, we, which is one of the reasons we thought this book was timely. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Justin, is there anything you'd like to add on this point? No, I mean, I, I think that um, for listeners, it's, I mean, one of the points that Alan made just is, is worth reiterating and really driving home in that we, th you know, the law here has evolved over time. And one of the things that typically falls outside of the protections of freedom of expression are things that are false and harmful. So lying about someone's product to make them lose business in, in a false way or saying untrue things about a person, um, how they conduct business or what they're doing. You know, these are used as disparagement and they're not protected speech. And the problem that industries and prison officials and you know, mental um, health hospitals were having with undercover investigations is they were being exposed and they didn't have the ability to sue these investigators for false statements because the revelations were true. And so they, the sort of cynical you know, development um, was and the, and, the, and the kind of course that they chose to chart was to go after the investigators with new laws or with new theories and trying to come up with this as calling it a trespass or calling it um, a criminal 
project to, to enter the property or to do engage in the recording. Um, and that's, that's a real shift. And I just wanted to highlight this because for us, the, the value of undercover investigations is the ability to bring to the public discourse about truthful matters of importance. Um, and so we're never talking about something that's false. We're not saying, oh, there wasn't really child abuse happening at this daycare facility that was investigated. It happened. And the question is just whether we as citizens should be able to know about it, whether there should be some protection for that that news gathering project. Uh, we're not talking about anything that has to do with misleading or, or deception, because those are those have always and, and, and long been protected by the law. Um, mm. Those have been prohibited, that kind of um, speech. Mm. No, that goes back to the idea of the importance of definitions. So thank you for exactly. emphasizing that. Um, Alan, perhaps I could ask you to tell us a bit about the best practices uh, developed and discussed in the book about undercover investigations walking this that fine line between protecting free speech and also preventing harm. I'd be happy to. Thanks for that question. Uh, we closed the book out with a little bit of a discussion about what we think might be a, a valuable set of best practices for undercover investigations. Uh, we think that perhaps both from a legal standpoint and from a public acceptability standpoint, it would be valuable to have, uh, to distinguish the types of investigations we're talking about from say some random person entering your home and you know trying to record your private business. And so uh, a few of the features of those best practices, we argue are uh, some of the things we've already talked about this, this morning. One, the information the investigator is seeking must be of a matter of public concern, something that is of broad interest to the general public, something that is valuable to contribute to public discourse and to democracy. Uh, second, um, even if you if the investigator gains access to the to private property, uh, they their their investigation should generally be confined to the areas where they are permitted to be. So um, not extremely private places like restrooms on an employer's premises or locker rooms, uh, if there are such things uh, that are uh, available to employees, but to the general to the general areas where the workplace is open to other employees. And that's to stave off some of the, the privacy concerns that we sometimes see leveled against undercover investigations. Uh, finally, we, uh, Justin talked earlier about editing videos. We, you know, we, we make a point that uh, although it, editing is almost always necessary, that uh, I bet the best practice is to edit in a way that will not manipulate or misrepresent uh, the actual events depicted on the video. Uh, so some, those are some of the things that we argue um, should be followed by undercover investigations both because that's good a good practice, whether you're a journalist or a political activist, but also because we think that it also helps stave off some of the legal concerns that critics of undercover investigations have uh, brought forth. Mm. Thank you for giving us an outline of that. Um, I think it very much makes the point clear that the book is helpful for understanding what has happened, but also giving us a nicely structured and defined way of understanding what is happening and what might happen in future. So I understand why you closed the book with that, but we're not quite closing the interview yet. I do have one last question, if you'll allow it. 
Um, the book is obviously looking towards the future. It's helping us understand this unsettled moment. Um, but it is out there. It is done. It is available and off your desks. So may I ask what you each are working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic, whether or not it's together? Um, maybe, Justin, you'd like to go first? Sure, yeah. Um, well, lots of things being worked on. On the, on the front that's most relevant to the book, uh, I'm working on some ongoing litigation that continues to challenge um, statutes that impede undercover investigations. And so some of those are general involving uh, audio recording provisions, sort of the people may have heard of, you know, uh, two-party consent statutes, so statutes that uh, say you, ha- you have to have everyone's consent that's part of a um, conversation to record. So looking at some litigation around those. Um, and then I'm actually working on a new book for Cambridge University Press, um, that is looking at uh, a variety of issues in, in social science and law um, as they relate to the, the field of animal studies. So, so the kind of uh, myths and misconceptions that relate to our interactions with the, um, the law and animals. Fascinating. Thank you for that preview. Alan, what about you? Thanks for that question. I, I am working on a couple of projects that are uh, one which is closely related to the material in the book, and one is more generally about free speech. The one that's specifically related to undercover investigations is, as I mentioned to you earlier, I am I'm trying to do a deeper dive on finding access to what uh, television news networks think about undercover investigations in the modern era, uh, find, trying to get access to standards and practices, uh, manuals and ethical codes that are internal to those uh, news media companies in order to figure out whether some of the legal impediments we've talked about uh, have really had a direct impact on reducing the number of undercover investigations uh, from TV news specifically. I, I, I think it's quite clear that newspapers are, are no longer doing these types of investigations, uh, which is, I think, unfortunate. Uh, I am also editing a book for Elgar Press, uh, uh, companion to uh, uh, free speech and uh, free exp- freedom of expression with um, Ash Bagwat, who's a uh, professor at the University of California, Davis uh, Law School. So uh, that's that's the, pro- the other big project I'm working on right now. Wonderful. Thank you both for sharing those kind of exciting upcoming projects, um, as well as, of course, discussing the book titled Truth and Transparency, Undercover Investigations in the 21st Century, published by Cambridge University Press. Alan and Justin, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great. Thank, thank you, Miranda. That was a great conversation.